Good morning. If you will turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, and I would like us to uh, read a longer section. It's not, uh, it's not queued up on the screen, um, but I'd like to begin at the end of Hebrews chapter 4 this morning. So if you'll turn to Hebrews chapter 4, and if you are using the Pew Bible this morning, you can find our passage beginning on page 693. I'd like us to begin reading in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, and going to the end of chapter 6. This is a long section, but as we're going along, I want you to to pay attention to the themes and how what he says at the beginning of the passage and what he says at the end come together. So if you found your place in your copy of God's Word this morning, if you'll stand with me, if you're able, and we'll read a a lengthy passage. I know it's uh, a lengthier passage than we're used to, but um, I hope that you'll pay attention as we read through it and that you'll be able to see the arguments of the author of Hebrews. So we're going to begin in chapter 4, verse 14, and we'll go to the end of chapter 6. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. About this, we have much to say. And it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. 
for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And we pray that your word will have its full effect in our hearts today. I pray that my brothers and sisters, your saints, would be encouraged. And I pray that for those who are here who have never trusted in Christ, I pray your spirit would convict them and bring them to Christ, our glorious Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Anyone here ever make a pinky promise? Pinky promise? You know, put your fingers together. I pinky swear. Anybody done that? No, you guys are shy. Okay, all right. We got a few. We got a few. You may have made a pinky promise to a friend before, but have you ever wondered about the origin of the pinky promise? Pinky swear? Best estimates are that this practice originated in Japan somewhere in the 17th or 18th century. In Japan, it's called yubikiri, or finger cut off. And I think you know where this is going. It was often accompanied by the vow, pinky swear, 10,000 punches, whoever lies will be made to swallow 1,000 needles. And you may have guessed that the symbolism is that if you break your promise, you have to cut off your pinky. I feel like in our current culture, I need to explicitly tell you, please, 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 do not cut off your pinky finger if you've ever broken a pinky promise. This is not an endorsement. It's simply a history lesson. The rumor is that the Yakuza, the Japanese mob, were the first to practice this, but I can neither confirm nor deny that. Uh, 
The pinky promise dates to at least 1860 in America, where it is mentioned in Bartlett's Dictionary of Americanisms with this line, pinky, pinky, bobel, whoever tells a lie will sink down to a bad place and never rise up again. Yikes. Cutting off a finger, swallowing a thousand needles, sinking down to a bad place. You may never make a casual promise ever again. But that's the point. That's the point. A, a promise is a serious thing that shouldn't be broken. And yet, is there anyone here who has never broken a promise? Maybe you've broken a pinky promise, or maybe your violation of someone's trust goes deeper. We live in a nation full of promise breakers. Broken contracts, broken campaign promises, broken wedding vows, and maybe someone has broken a promise that they've made to you, and so now you find it difficult to trust anyone. We've become somewhat desensitized to broken, empty promises. We're not much phased by divorce anymore. Whenever we hear a politician say almost anything in a campaign speech, we just roll our eyes. And so we're extremely skeptical whenever someone makes a promise because we've heard enough empty ones. And if we're not careful, we'll bring that same attitude of cynicism and unbelief into our understanding of the promises of God. Why else would someone leave the faith? Whatever the excuses, they've been hurt by the people in the church, they've become disillusioned by the beliefs and the, the practices of the church, they, they, they've never felt so much freedom as when they discovered they could worship God however they wanted Whatever the excuse, it really boils down to this. They don't believe the promises of God, and so they've abandoned their hope in Christ. This is what the believers to whom the letter of Hebrews is addressed, we're dealing with. Persecution, hardship, temptations have arisen, and they're in danger of falling away, of, of leaving the faith, of, of, of leaving the church and going somewhere else. And so a strong warning is given to them in chapter 6, verses 4 through 8. And then as we saw last week, it's followed by a strong encouragement in verses 9 through 12. We feel sure of better things in your case, beloved. But maybe they still doubt Despite the assurances the author is giving, perhaps they're still wavering. Perhaps you're wavering too. Perhaps you're, you're struggling with doubts also. Maybe you're struggling with doubts and, and fears. Maybe you're, you're questioning, can God even be trusted? You wonder if, if you can ever have assurance of the things that we, we speak of, if, if, if you can ever have assurance of your own salvation, if, if Jesus is really worth it, it or, or if you're always going to question, you're always going to doubt, you're always going to fear. If maybe you'd be better off without Christianity. 
Beloved, that's not the state in which you were meant to live. God has given his promises and we can believe, we can have hope for the future. And as we'll see in our text this morning, God has made this hope doubly sure for us. And we can trust him and have a a rock-solid, immovable hope. And in this way, as, as we cling to this hope, as we believe the promises of God, we will then obey chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, and, and have the earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that we may not be sluggish, but imitators, literally mimics of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This morning, I want you to have hope. I want you to have hope. We live in a hopeless society. We live in a hopeless culture. We live in in a time where people don't know what to believe. People are tossed about by all kinds of of waves of different doctrine and and different positions, and they're, they're pulling themselves apart. They don't have any hope. Today, I want you to leave here having hope. Not empty or wishful thinking hope, but a sure and steadfast hope. A hope that will carry you through even the darkest moments of your life. And as we'll see in the passage before us today, our hope is made double sure by God's promise and by God's oath. And so our our passage, verses 13 through 20, divided very simply into two sections. Verses 13 through 16, we see Abraham's double sure hope. And in verses 17 through 20, we see our double sure hope. So let's look at verses 13 through 16 again. And let's look at Abraham's double sure hope. In verses 11 through 12, the author urges the saints to pursue a full assurance of hope so that they won't be sluggish, but instead they will be imitators. They will be mimics of those who have gone before, who have been examples of faith and and patience because they held on to this hope. This anticipates chapter 11, which we'll get to sometime where he will walk through the Old Testament and we will see example after example of saints who persevered through faith. But here in verses 13 through 16, he's going to hone in on Abraham. Now, why Abraham? I think we could give a bunch of different reasons, but he's the father of faith. He is the the penultimate example of, of the man of faith. But I think we also will see that it's because of his connection with Melchizedek, which we will look at in further detail next week. But here's the question. Here's the question that we need to be pondering. How? How can I go on believing? How in the midst of having my property confiscated, of being ostracized from society, maybe even family, of seeing fellow Christians thrown into jail, I'm hurting, I'm tired, I'm disillusioned. 
It seems that my best option is to gather up whatever pieces of my life I can and, and return to, to Judaism and go back to the temple and the, the priesthood and the sacrifices or, or maybe try, try some other religion that the pagans already like instead of, instead of clinging on to Christ, instead of clinging on to Christianity and, and having to deal with all the cultural pressures, why don't I just leave Christianity and go look for my hope somewhere else? How can I go on? How can I have hope in a culture that's increasingly hostile to Christians where I'm called a bigot and a homophobe? I'm laughed at in school, at work, online. How can I have hope? Consider Abraham's life and the promises of God. Verse 14 is a quote from Genesis 22, verse 17, but we need to start at the beginning of Abraham's story. So if you'll turn with me back to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. Keep your, your spot in Hebrews chapter 6, but we're going to spend some time in Genesis. Genesis chapter 12, verses one through three is the first place where we see God's promises to Abram before God changes his name to Abraham. It says in chapter 12, verse one, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Abram, we're told in verse 4, was 75 years old when God gave these promises to him. He was living first in Ur of the Chaldeans and then in Haran. And now he's being told to go to the land of, of Canaan. He's 75 years old and he takes his wife, who is barren, and they leave. And immediately after the promises, Abraham goes down to Egypt and he gives his wife away. And we have the, the story of how God intervenes so that Abram receives his wife back. Chapter 13, we have Abram and Lot having to separate. And we have constant conflict with Abram and other people. And we have to wonder what Abraham was thinking about the promise I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. Chapter 14 is Abram rescuing Lot and the Melchizedek event, which we'll look at next week. And then in chapter 15, God makes a covenant with Abram. Look at verses 5 and 6 of chapter 15. And he, being the angel of the Lord, the word of the Lord, he brings him outside and he says, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, he said to Abraham, so shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. And the rest of the chapter is God cutting a covenant with Abram. And then 10 years pass, 10 years pass. When we get to 
Uh, chapter 16, Abram is 85 years old. And we have the story of Hagar and Ishmael as Abram and Sarai, they decide that they're, if the promises are going to take place, then they're going to have to do something about it. And then we, we jump down to chapter 17 and we see another 13 years. Abram is 99 years old now. And God, again, he gives him the promises. He gives him the sign of the covenant, which is circumcision. But look at Genesis chapter 17, verses 4 through 8. God speaking to Abram, he says, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. But it's not until Abraham is 100 years old, 25 years after the initial promise of Genesis chapter 12, that Isaac is finally born in chapter 21, and then comes chapter 22, which Dave read for us already. He's received the promised son. God has, has finally given him what he has promised in a son. And then we read the words of Genesis chapter 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And one of the most astounding verses in the Old Testament. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. You're probably familiar with the story. Abraham is about to offer Isaac, the son God has promised to him, the son through whom all the other promises were to come. If, if Isaac is the promised offspring, then everything else that God has said is going to flow through Isaac. And here, God is saying, kill him. God is essentially saying, go put to death the one through whom all the promises are going to come. And he did this because, as the writer of Hebrews will tell us in chapter 11, verse 19, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. And just as the knife falls, the angel of the Lord stops Abraham. Abraham, Abraham, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. The angel of the Lord continues in verses 16 through 18, and this is the passage that, that the author of Hebrews is meditating upon in chapter 6. 
the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And Abraham receives his son back. Consider Abraham's faith. Consider how he hoped in God. Back to Hebrews chapter 6. How could Abraham wait so patiently? After all these years of of wondering, of of being opposed by different people, of, of being in conflict, and God repeating the promises over and over and over again, and yet he has to wait. How can he do it? How could, when the promise has, has arrived, how can he be willing to sacrifice his son in obedience to God's command? What was his source of hope? He believed God's word. He believed God's word. He trusted that God would accomplish what God had said. God told him that his offspring would be like the stars in the sky, and he believed God. Paul, writing in Romans chapter 4, verses 18 through 21, he says, In hope, he, Abraham, believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. So God has given his word. He's given his promise to Abraham. But having believed God's word, being patient and waiting, God made the promise even more sure. He swore an oath. That's what happens in Genesis chapter 22, verses 16 and 17. By myself I have sworn, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And the author of Hebrews points out this important aspect in verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and multiply you. We jump down to verse 16, and it says, people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. People swear by something greater than themselves. To take an oath is to put extra weight on your words. We can think of someone taking an oath in court. You place your left hand on the Bible and lift your right hand. You swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. The same is true when an elected official official takes an oath in office. Many of you here have taken oaths. The oath to defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. 
you could have just said it. You could have just made a promise. You could have just said, I'll do this and left it at that. But the oath adds severity to your words. These are not empty promises. You take this oath seriously. Many of you have been out of the military for a number of years and you still take this oath very, very seriously as if you had just taken it yesterday. And how does that oath end? So help me God. So help me God. People swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. If there's ever a dispute, if there's ever an argument, you go back to your oath. I swore that I would do this. But who does God swear by? God has no one greater to swear by. He is ultimate. He's the highest, and not by degrees, but infinitely higher than anything else. Who is he going to swear by? And so the author says, he swore by himself. By myself, I have sworn. When someone swears an oath, like, so help me God, or the most common oath in the Old Testament was, as Yahweh lives, as the Lord lives, I will do this. When someone makes that oath, they're saying, God stands as witness over my word. He, he is here. I'm making a promise to you. I'm swearing an oath to you. And God himself bears witness to this. And if I break my word, may God ensure that justice occurs. May God cut off my finger if I break my pinky swear. May God strike me down if I don't fulfill my oath. As the Lord lives, this is serious business. Which is why it's so staggering that God swore by himself. Because Yahweh is essentially saying, may I die if I don't fulfill all of these promises. May my divine essence be severed if I fail to do all that I've said. But see, God can't be rent apart. It's impossible for God's divinity to be severed. And so we can see how the promise is made doubly sure. Abraham had the promise now he has the oath, and thus Abraham patiently waited and obtained the promise. 25 years he waited. Despite ups and downs, despite the years in which it looked like God wouldn't keep his promise, yet Abraham waited and he obtained what God had said he would receive. But I think there's still something going on here because, yes, he received his son back, but God had promised much more than that. God had promised more than just the son. He promised that God would make his descendants number like the stars in the sky or like the sand of the seashore. God had promised that he would give the land of Canaan to Abraham, that kings would come from him, that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through Abraham. What about all those promises? Because Abraham, he lived for a long time, but he did not see any of those promises. 
And yet the author of Hebrews can say he inherited the promise. He obtained the promise. And I think what we see here is that Isaac was the proof that all the other promises would come true also. F.F. Bruce commenting on this said there was much in God's promise to Abraham whose fulfillment lay in the distant future. But in the restoration to Abraham of the son upon whose survival the promise depended, Abraham did, in a very substantial sense, obtain the promise. He received back his son, and God swore with an oath, by myself, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply you. And when Abraham took his son in his arms and they went down from Moriah, he took within his arms all of the promises of God. And so with that hope made double sure by God's promise sealed with an oath, Abraham was able to patiently wait and obtain the promise. And these words connect us back to verse 12. And this is the entire point of the writer bringing up Abraham. Remember, the the author wants us to imitate Abraham. Abraham went through circumstances much like ours. He faced similar temptations. He could have just as easily returned to Ur of the Chaldeans... As we're reading through the the story of Abraham, it seems like God is speaking to him every chapter. But remember, we're talking about 25 years. There are periods when, when there is silence. And he could have left. He could have said, you know what, God, pick someone else. Because that I don't believe this. But he didn't. Because he believed the word of God. He had the promise. And God swore an oath by himself that he would fulfill this. And Abraham having this this double assurance, he patiently waited. He endured the hardships and he received the promise. And the author is saying, mimic that. Mimic that. Mimic that faith. Imitate that faith. Don't reject the hope we have. But a strong assurance that as as Abraham had, we have something even greater. So Abraham had a double sure hope. But in verses 17 through 20, we see we have a double sure hope. Look at what he says. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. The promises made to Abraham weren't for Abraham alone, but for the heirs of the promise. And we have to ask the question, who are the heirs of the promise? Who is he talking about? We've already seen this in chapter 2. Verse 10, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. 
For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. And who are the offspring of Abraham? Paul makes it very clear in Galatians chapter 3, verse 29. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. He's talking to Christians. He's talking to you. He's talking to you. God has given his promises to Abraham. God has given those same promises to you. And God has desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose or his will. In other words, he's given the promises to you and he wants you to have the same hope that Abraham had. He has promised to Abraham blessings through Abraham's offspring. And you are heirs of that promise. God's promise to Abraham becomes God's promise to you. And just as Abraham patiently waited through years and he went through trials and, and suffering and temptation, there were, there were times of silence, he waited and God wants you to wait too. He wants you to mimic that. He wants you to have that same hope as Abraham. But how can we be sure? How can we be sure after thousands of years? We're not talking 25 years. We're talking thousands of years. How can we be sure? Maybe Abraham could wait 25 years, but, but us, how can we be sure? with so many hardships and sorrows, with a world that increasingly looks like it's spiraling out of control and that seems to be more and more given over to depravity and wickedness. How can we be sure? That was the question asked by these Christians. How can we believe? It's because his purposes are unchangeable. His purposes are unchangeable. This is the unchangeable character of his purpose. God doesn't change. Be it 25 years, 1,000 years, 2,000 years, a million years, God doesn't change. His purposes are unchangeable. His will and his promises remain the same as they were in Abraham's day to bring blessings to the nations to reverse the curse of Genesis chapter 3 through his seed, a promise in which Abraham believed and which has now been given to us. But just like with Abraham, God has made his promises doubly sure for us. 
because he not only has given us the promise, he has guaranteed it with an oath. He's guaranteed it with an oath. And I think given the context of these verses, going all the way back to chapter 4 and chapter 5, I think we can know exactly what he's talking about by going over to Psalm chapter 110. Psalm 110. This is where he's been camping out. This is, this is what's been going through his mind ever since the end of chapter 4, going into chapter 5, going into chapter 6, going into chapter 7. He's thinking about Psalm 110. He's especially thinking about verses 1 and 4. The Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. There's his word. There's his promise. The Lord Yahweh says to Adonai, to, to David's Lord, sit at my right hand. I'm going to put all your enemies under your feet. He goes on and says, Yahweh sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Do you see all these massive promises that are given? That These are words given to the Messiah. That they are words of promise. God is going to do these things. But God makes this doubly sure in verse 4. It says, Yahweh has, what? Sworn. Yahweh has sworn and he will not change his mind. His purposes are unchangeable. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. The Christ is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. We saw what this looks like back in chapter 5. That's why I wanted us to read it this morning so that we could put our eyes on it again and hear it rattling around in our brains. He is a priest chosen by God to offer sacrifices for sin and he sits as high priest forever. Through his death on the cross, the Lord Jesus fully atoned for the sins of all of his people. And by his resurrection and glorified life, he will remain the great high priest of his people forever. God has given us his promise, but he has made it, on top of the promise, he's made it doubly sure by saying he has sworn. How can we be so certain of the promises? How can we be so sure that, that this is going to happen? Because God not only promised it, but he guaranteed it with an oath. And who does he swear by? He has to swear by himself. Because there's no one higher than God by which he can swear. He swears by himself with an oath. That's the connection. There is no one greater to swear by, so he swears by himself. F.F. Bruce again says, Abraham rested his hope in the promise and oath of God. But we have more than that to rest our hope upon. We have the fulfillment of his promise in the exaltation of Christ. No wonder that our hope is secure and stable. 
because they rest. Verse 18 says, on two unchangeable things, his promise and his oath. He will not change his promise. His word is secure, but he's, he's done something even more for us. He has sworn an oath. He will not change his mind because God cannot change and God cannot lie. It is impossible for God to lie. Did you know that there's things that God can't do? He is all-powerful, and yet there are things that God cannot do. He can't die. He cannot sin. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13 says he cannot deny himself. That is, he cannot change his nature. He doesn't change his mind. He cannot lie. And God's inability to do this is good news for us. It's good news for us that God cannot do these things. Fill the weight of what he's been saying about God. God has given his promise to Abraham. And through faith in Christ, those promises are now ours but so that we might have double assurance in case you're still doubting. Not because God has to do it. God doesn't have to make an oath. He does not have to swear. He does this out of his merciful kindness to poor sinners. He remembers that we're but dust. He knows how weak we are. And so God in his, his merciful kindness, in his infinite Grace, he adds to his promise his oath. And since there is no one greater to swear that oath by, he swears by himself, meaning let me be torn asunder if I break my word. But God can't die. He can't be torn asunder. And finally, to top it all off, he reminds us that God doesn't change and God doesn't lie we're reminded of this in several places. Numbers 23, verse 19. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 29. Psalm 89, verse 35. Titus chapter 1, verse 2. God cannot lie. Layer upon layer is given so that you might believe his word and have hope. So that you might have hope. See the kindness of God. He doesn't leave us floundering. And he doesn't call upon us to look inside ourselves for strength. He doesn't call upon us to just have wishful thinking. He gives his promise. Christ Jesus is our great high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so that you might have double assurance, he swears an oath. And he tells you, you can believe this. You can believe this. What ought this to do for us? If God has given his promise and he, he's stacked on top of it his oath, he cannot lie, he does not change, he cannot die, what should this do for us? This should give a strong encouragement, verse 18 says. To 
hold fast to the hope set before us. two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We are those who have fled for refuge. And you can't help but think of the song we sing here, Flee from Sin, Run to Jesus. It reminds us of the cities of refuge, to which a manslayer could run for protection in Israel in the Old Testament. If anyone accidentally killed another person, they could run to the city of refuge and they could be, they could be safe from the avenger, the, the, the family member who's out to avenge the death of their relative. You're safe in the city of refuge. We who have turned away from our sin have fled to Christ our refuge. But it's tempting to think, maybe I'm not really safe. Maybe I'm not really safe from the wrath of God. Maybe I'm not really safe from the terrors of sin and my own guilty conscience. I'm not safe from the devil or the threatenings of the world. Maybe Jesus isn't enough. Maybe I need to find another refuge, a stronger refuge. But outside the city of refuge was danger from the avenger of blood. Outside is death and judgment. Inside is safety and rest. God had appointed the city of refuge in Old Testament Israel. He had approved a refuge for, for those who, who had sinned in the Old Testament. He has appointed a refuge for sinners now. It is in Christ. He is our refuge. Stay in Christ. And we can have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that's set before us. We can have strong encouragement that he is a strong refuge, that there is no other, there is no one else that can protect us. We don't just have encouragement, we have strong encouragement to hold fast to this hope. Don't forsake Christ. Don't, don't leave when the temperature gets turned up and, and when it looks like none of God's promises will come true. Hold on. Trust his word. It has been sealed with an oath. This gives us hope. And this hope is like a sure and steady anchor for the soul. We have this like a sure and steady anchor for the soul. We have what? We have this. We have this hope. We have hope that's like a sure and steadfast anchor. An anchor, it's, it's used to secure a ship to the bottom of a body of water so that the ship won't, won't drift with the current or, or, or with the wind. It's an apt illustration since the writer has already warned us in chapter 2, verse 1, not to drift away. If you're not going to drift away, what do you need to have? You need to have an anchor. If we're not careful, the, the winds of culture will blow us away. If we're not diligent, the waves of pressure and persecution will cause us to, to drift and, and make shipwreck of our faith. But God has given us an anchor a sure and steadfast anchor. It's the hope that we have that all of God's promises will be fulfilled. 
He says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. The inner place is the holy of holies in the temple. It's separated by a curtain. It's where the Ark of the Covenant was, the, the place that only the high priest could go in, and he could only go in one time of, year, of the year, and he could only go in one time of the year if he had the blood of bulls and goats. Otherwise, he would die. This is where our hope has gone. It's behind the curtain. This is a, a phrase that's used elsewhere, only in Leviticus chapter 16, verse 2, which is a passage describing the high priest's function in taking the blood of bulls and goats behind the curtain into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. This is where our hope rests, not behind the curtain of the temple in Jerusalem, but into the heavenly Holy of Holies, into the very throne room of God. And this hope is like an anchor. But a ship's anchor, it secures the ship downward. It sinks into the water. Our hope is an anchor thrust upward into the heavenlies. And it secures us to the very throne of God. So that we won't drift away. No matter the wind and the waves, no matter how we are tossed about, our anchor, our hope, is sure and steadfast. It will hold fast. We will not be moved because we are connected to God in Christ. Our anchor holds us fast to the very throne of God because that's where Christ is. Our hope enters into the inner place behind the curtain because that's where Jesus has gone. He's gone as a forerunner. On our behalf, the word forerunner, it could also be translated as precursor. He goes as our representative. And his presence at the right hand of God necessarily means that we will follow him. He goes, but he doesn't go alone. He goes as our forerunner in our, on our behalf, by faith and our union with Christ, we can enter into the presence of God with confidence now. That's what we see in chapter 4. It says that, that we are able to, to approach the throne of grace with confidence now. But we know that where Christ is, there his people must also be because he's their priest after the order of Melchizedek. He's the forever priest. The priest that God has chosen and guaranteed with an oath. And we can trust in him. Our anchor holds fast because Christ cannot be moved. We will not drift away because our anchor is secured to Christ. We cannot be lost because Christ holds us fast. John Calvin says, Thus, when united to God, though we must struggle with continual storms, we are yet beyond the peril of shipwreck. Dennis Johnson, another commentator, said, The object of our hope may seem far off in a distant future, but it already exists, and we are secured to it as if it were a grappling hook 
to which the souls of believers were connected through our bond with Jesus. We may be beaten and tossed about, but the anchor will hold because it's anchored where Christ is and where Christ will forever be because of God's promise and God's oath. We will not be lost. You can have hope. But as we come to the, the close of chapter 6, I, I wanted to trace where we've been. That's why I wanted us to read this long passage because we've seen chapter 4, verse 14 through chapter 5, verse 10 of Christ's superiority to the, the high priest, the Levitical high priest in Jerusalem. Christ is better because he's after the order of Melchizedek. And we'll look at that more next week. In chapter 5, verse 11, through chapter 6, verse 3, we, we're confronted with the trouble of shallow, immature Christianity that doesn't care to hear about these things. It doesn't care to, to dive into these things and, and meditate upon how Christ is our great high priest. Chapter 6, verses 4 through 8, we have the warning of falling away. If you're content with shallow, immature Christianity that doesn't care about these things, that doesn't think about these things, you're going to have a very, a very loose hold on Christ. And when the winds of, of culture, when, when pressure and persecution, when temptations come, you are going to be lost. You're going to be blown away. And so beware. Beware of falling away. But verses 9 through 12 give us the assurance that based on God's character and demonstrated by his work and regeneration, the saints will never fall away. But today in verses 13 through 20, we have this double sure hope in God illustrated in Abraham's life and brought to completion in the exaltation of Christ as a great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And with that, the author of Hebrews has brought us full circle back to his original point. Christ is the great high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Oh, how we need this Melchizedekian priest. Don't, don't consider this as, well, that, that's just some kind of doctrine that I don't have time for. This is something that is too confusing. It's too hard. You need this. That's been the writer's point through two chapters. You need this. Don't, don't, don't just push it away. Don't, don't push it aside. You need this Melchizedekian priest who actually atones for sin. Who has become the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Who lives forever to intercede for his saints. No high priest of the Levitical order could ever match this description. No, no Levitical high priest from Aaron all the way down to, to the time that the temple was destroyed in AD 70 could, could ever accomplish these things. We need Christ. We need the Lord Jesus. And we can hold on to him with a sure and steadfast hope. We need him. Don't be content with a shallow Christianity. Press on 
towards maturity. Don't be sluggish. Don't be dull of hearing. Imitate those who, like Abraham, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. Because they believed God's word and they hoped in God's Messiah. They they were looking forward by faith to this Melchizedekian priest. He's come. We have him. We have the promise and the oath. And Christ has come. Believe in him. Because as Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, all the promises of God find their yes in him. And this hope is like an anchor holding you to the very throne of God. But what if you cast your anchor into other waters, hoping in something other than Christ? What if in your folly you cast an anchor onto your good works? Or maybe you'll cast your anchor onto some other god like money or health or success. That anchor will not hold. That anchor will not hold. The line will snap and you will be cast away. What what if... What if you just want to take your chances or or if you're just in your recklessness and your carelessness, you show no regard for your own soul and so you don't cast an anchor at all. You will drift down the current of destruction and make a shipwreck of your soul and there will be no one to help you. Only Christ is a sure hope. Only trust in him will give you assurance that your sins are forgiven that you have been made right with God. Only holding fast to his cross, his death in your place, only his blood will give you hope for eternity. Are you trusting in him? Are you trusting in him? Are you anchored to him? You can. You can even today, if you would turn away from your sin and throw your hope on him, he is there. He is a sure and steady anchor. We have this hope. It's not wishful thinking. It's not subject to cultural pressures or circumstances. It's not based on the weak promises and works of men. It's not dependent on even your very best good works. based only on Christ. It's as sure as Christ Jesus is alive and seated at the right hand of God the Father. It's as unchangeable because it's sealed by God's oath. It is a true and double sure hope pray that you will have this hope today. Let's pray together. Father, in the weakness and inadequacy of this preacher, I pray that your people see Jesus. 
pray that despite any temptations that they're facing this morning, any trouble, any doubts, I pray that they will see Christ God, I pray that they'll have hope. Hope fastened to your very throne where they can confidently approach the throne of grace and they can find grace and help in time of need. I pray that, that your saints will be trusting in the blood of Jesus that they will stand fast no matter what comes in this life. And God, I pray for those who have never trusted in Christ who are here today. I pray, God, your spirit would do a work of saving them. God, Christ is set before them and they're blind and they're deaf. They're dead in their sins and trespasses, I pray your spirit would bring them to life. Open their blind eyes, open their deaf ears, cause them to see the beauty and the glory of Christ, that they might hope in him. Thank you, God, for your word. A word that is sure a word that has been guaranteed by your oath. I pray that your people would believe. And I pray that in believing, they would stand firm, holding fast to the hope they have in Christ. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.